Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Celine Gounder, the host of American Diagnosis. We were working on season four when the coronavirus pandemic struck, and since then, we've been busy with another show, Epidemic. Season one of Epidemic is all about the science of coronavirus and how COVID is reshaping and leading us to reinvent our world. You can find Epidemic wherever you listen to podcasts. Season four of American Diagnosis is coming. But in the meantime, here's a bonus interview with a really amazing scientist, physician, and dear friend of mine, Kaf Jaraza. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome back to American Diagnosis, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. It wasn't just a big conference. It was like a thousands-person conference. Um, and it was the first time I had gone anywhere near speaking at one of these conferences, let alone being one of like the five or six keynotes. This is my friend, Kaf Jaraza. And I'll never forget, I went to the hotel, and there's this huge picture of me like on the wall. <laughs> and I'm like, so excited. I'm like, hey, look, it's me. It's like a huge picture of me. And um, it's amazing. And I, like, I want to send pictures to my mom because I'm like, look, I made it, mom. I'm like a keynote at a huge conference. And I'm doing what people do. They're talking to colleagues. They're walking around. I'm just like excited because I'm a keynote at the conference. And I'll never forget, I was in the lobby of the hotel. And a woman comes in and she weaved through the crowd. I just saw her like weaving a little bit aggressively through the crowd from like, you know, 20 feet away. And then she comes right up to me, holds out her hand and like hands me her suitcase. Kaf is a rock star in medicine. He's a psychiatrist and National Institutes of Health, NIH, funded brain researcher at Duke University. He's also a public engagement fellow for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Kaf is also a black man in science in America. My colleagues are absolutely aghast. Um, I'm aghast, right? Um, I'm the only black face in sight, um, which highlights her bias, which in some ways um, maps on to the type of bias with police officers, right? She was not used to seeing that ever. Every black face that she'd seen was a bellman, and so she just assumed that. But then secondly, it spoke to the opposite, which was, you know, like, a lot of the conferences I go to don't tend to be overpopulated by black men, right? So if there was a lot of black men, she probably would have thought all of them were bell men, but at least there'd be something that didn't highlight me in the crowd, right? So I always think about these two things, this, this duality of these two things. But it, as you can imagine, right? I mean, it's this one moment you're like, this is so amazing. I finally made it. And then you look on the other side and this is not to discredit, you know, all of the wonderful people who do uh, all kinds of amazing jobs. It was just hard for that to be projected onto me in that situation with my colleagues. So in this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Kaf about how he climbed to the heights of biomedical research in the United States as a first-generation immigrant and a Black man. We'll hear how the legacy of slavery continues in science and medicine, Kaf's advice for getting mentors, and how he's handling the pandemic as a scientist and an African-American. Kaf Jaraza, welcome to American Diagnosis. I do think it's really important for the audience to understand what a research badass you are. Could you kind of put that in context for people? 
Yeah, so I uh, finished my PhD uh, in my uh, Doctor of Philosophy at Duke University in 2007 with a concentration in neuroengineering. So that is applying engineering techniques to understand the brain and to use it to come up with new treatments for diseases, particularly psychiatric diseases. I was the first African-American to finish. And at the time when I completed my PhD in three and a half years, I basically broke the 20-year department record to finish up. I had two more years of medical school to go after finishing my PhD. I was in a joint program. So I finished my MD and PhD dual degrees in 2009 and immediately joined the faculty at Duke University running my own research lab. While I was running my own research lab, I also started clinical training in psychiatry. So I was a part-time clinical trainee while also being on the faculty at Duke running my own research lab. So that's actually not normal. And actually, it's funny because now that I think about it, I kind of did something similar. I joined semi-joined faculty and was a fellow at the same time, which is also not totally normal. But um, and that was at Hopkins. But like, that's not normal that you're a resident and a faculty member, right? Yes. Uh, none of my residency supervisors thought it was normal either. <laughs> so so that took a, a little bit of time to get, get used to. Um, and on the research side, things went exceptionally well um, early on. And just to give you some, some metrics to help you appreciate that, um, as a physician scientist, the typical age at which people, uh, what we call reach independence as a scientist. So this is to get your first big major seven-figure NIH grant that allows you to pursue your research interest. That typically happens for physician scientists. Those are people with MD and PhDs around 45 years old. Um, I was able to do it at age 34, so about 11 years ahead of schedule. And um, additionally with that, about 1% to 2% of the NIH uh, investigators that get this type of grant are black. So I felt into these really small concentric circles. Uh, one, as an African-American being able to do this, but then secondly, also doing it 11 years ahead of schedule. So it's been a, a very fascinating and exciting research career, to say the least. So I, I kind of want to go back to, well, was it a year ago now? You had written like in a night or two a book about your entire life, which was truly amazing. <laughs> I, I kind of want to touch on some of those details because I think that's a really important part of your your story. Yeah, you, you, you know, you, you joked about writing a book at, or in a day or two. It wasn't that uh, <laughs> fast. It was five weeks. And so my family, my parents were born in uh, Ghana, which is in West Africa, and they grew up as neighbors. My father's father, so my grandfather on my father's side, was, interestingly enough, really heavy into politics. Um, and so Ghana had declared independence uh, from uh, the British Empire during World War II. And he was one of the foundational members who is helping set up uh, the government in the country. And so if you go to a lot of the monuments, his you know, it's the only place in the world where they pronounce my last name correctly, uh, largely due to my uh, grandfather. And, you know, my, I was the second uh, of three boys uh, born to my mother and father. And at the time, you know, my dad was a student. Uh, my mom was just getting up her nursing career in the United States. And so my dad was a janitor while simultaneously uh, taking classes in the business school and occasionally helping to teach and TA some of the classes as well. So I would say the irony of my history is that, you know, you have this extremely uh, brilliant and politically active family 
uh, and on the other side of it, you have medicine. And then my dad, who's teaching business classes, is also cleaning toilets for his classmates. And so all of that, the intersection of the humility and uh, the, the hard work and the commitment to medicine and the commitment to science and education is what formed the foundation of who I have uh, tried to be throughout the course of my life. So you have your family, which is this like, again, interesting sort of intersection of really like Ghanaian royalty in a sense. And yet in the U.S., that's not how they're seen. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've, I've, I've wrestled a lot with um, my experience as a first generation um, black person uh, in the United States. In a lot of ways, when one thinks about uh, the impact of generations and generations and generations of uh, slavery on the psychological uh, state of individuals growing up in the United States, my experience was very different, right? I look back one generation and it was not a family that was rooted in the legacy of slavery. So I wrestle with this um, in the book, right? The idea of getting into college and, and really spending time looking at African-American history and learning about Dred Scott and Jim Crow and how that has shaped um, my experience, experiences moving throughout life and some of the things that I took for granted, even in high school, being the only black male or black person in several many of my science classes and um, other AP classes, and not being able to fully understand the backdrop that led to those experiences until I got to college. So you went to college at the University of Maryland, where you studied engineering. Then you decided to go to medical school. What was that like? So medical school was awful. And I had early intersections with faculty um, and advisory deans at Duke that sort of blended my experience of feeling like I was dumb. And then all of the subtext around race started showing up. You know, we would get slides um, and they would teach us about diseases and things we should memorize. And I would repeatedly find that people that were sick with a certain disease type, like if they're showing an example of what a bad disease looked like, um, some like there were some cases in which they would always be paired with black skin. And so it, it really begins to pair these things in ways that I, I say enforce this really complicated and really insidious history of uh, medicine and science in this country, right? Um, this idea that medicine and science were developed in this country in a way that paralleled the legacy of slavery. And Unless active uh, efforts were put in to unknit these things, these things then became ingrained in how medical students were being trained. And I experienced that. Um, and then when you hear that, there's a, you can tell that the bias is coming in by how the team then responds to the framing of the patient in that context. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that race isn't important. It just then layers on top of all of those signals that you've gotten early on uh, in your medical training. Well, it's so interesting what you say about... Um I mean, taking the example of syphilis and African-Americans, obviously white people and Latino people and many others get syphilis. However, African-American people are the only group that were deliberately denied treatment in order to take some of the photos that you probably saw as part of research on syphilis. Yeah, no, I mean, this is so this is what I mean when I say the legacy of slavery grew along 
medicine in this country, right? Um, and science. And it framed what people began to think about truth, right? And so I, I was watching an interesting interview this morning uh, where Dr. Fauci, so this is the head of uh, the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who's been really framing how our country thinks about coronavirus. And he was talking about um, anti-science bias. And I was struck by one of the points he made, which he said, science is truth. And I think there it's important to add a slight caveat to that, which is science is the pursuit of truth. <laughs> and in that pursuit of truth are those that pursue truth. And, and, and so I think with that framing that science is the pursuit of truth, I, th- I think that then we can begin to talk about this example of what you're saying with uh, the Tuskegee experiments, where uh, treatment was deliberately withheld from black people to see what the endpoint was of end-stage syphilis. So all of that in the pursuit of truth, that is done in parallel um, to all of these challenges with how uh, black bodies are objectified and framed in a way that then creates the bias that we see in health and medicine today. And it extends even beyond that, right? So the legacy of Tuskegee was decades ago, but you can even see that to this very day in how we're pursuing this idea of precision medicine. Right. So what's precision medicine? This might seem obvious to most people, but in medicine, we're finally figuring out that we need to tailor our approach to the patient, to their genes, their environment, their lifestyle, to figure out what will work best for them in terms of preventing and treating disease. Well, as we're thinking about the understanding of the human body and uh, understanding even the human genome, what was pretty clear early on is that the genomic studies were largely done on people of European descent. So even our understanding on the basis of what it means to do precision medicine is based on people of European descent. And the the NIH is now working hard to address that gap uh, through what they call the All of Us Initiative. And the idea of even addressing that gap then means looking at getting diverse populations uh, and tracking their uh, their personal genomics and their behavior and everything else, and sort of updating some of these historical gaps that, and his, historical means here, five years ago, uh, these gaps that have existed in the medical uh, and scientific framework. So it's interesting that you went from Tuskegee to precision medicine, because there's definitely a link there. But I think it may not be obvious to the average listener, why are African Americans and other people of color underrepresented in these genomic studies? The legacy of Tuskegee is known, right? It, it, it is well known. <laughs> um, and because it's well known, one would say, uh, and it, the totally rational conclusion, and I've heard uh, my African-American patients say this, is we know what happened in Tuskegee. I'm not about to be your science experiment. <laughs> so this is problem number one, right? Because if you want people to participate in genomic studies, they have to uh, agree to be part of a science experiment. If you want them to take the medicine, they have to agree to be part of a science experiment. And the scientific enterprise has wronged African-Americans, uh, the Tuskegee example being a particularly clear one. Uh, the second example of, of, of this idea of uh, being used in part of a clinical trial um, and why folks might have concern about that. I think most scientists 
most are, are familiar with the endpoint of this, but not the background, right? The example of Henrietta Lacks. And so she uh, was a patient at Johns Hopkins uh, who had cancer. And the clinicians and scientists at Hopkins uh, took some of her cancer and were able to develop a cell line called HeLa cells. And so her body was then used to make all kinds of treatments and monetize. And not only was the family not compensated, they didn't actually know that this was happening, right? They took a part of a black body and use it to help everybody's health and monetize it in a way that wasn't compensated. And so you can see how clearly that intersects with a legacy of slavery, this idea that black bodies were used to fuel capital and development, right? Which is the intersection of the legacy of slavery and the legacy of capitalism and how that would show up in medicine today. The second part of uh, that legacy that's extremely problematic is that if you look, the clinicians and scientists don't always look like the patient populations they're trying to reach. And that's a huge problem, right? For the last 30 years, uh, the AAMC, the American Association uh, for Medical Colleges, uh, has sought to increase the number of particularly uh, black folks, but especially black males going into medicine. And to this day, that number stands at about 500 per year. And so they have totally undershot that number and haven't made much headway uh, in developing that. And so this is a major problem because now you have a, a, a dearth on the clinical side, a dearth on the scientific side, um, and then a history in which the system of medicine and science has, um, and I don't use this word gently, has abused African Americans in this country. Let's take a minute to dive a little deeper into this. Why is it so important to have a doctor that looks like you? Yeah, so it, studies have shown this, right? Patients tend to do better when they have shared experiences with physicians. Um, black patients tend to have better health outcomes uh, when they have black doctors. So if, you know, we as physicians assume that everyone lives in the same way and has the same set of experiences for us, we can tend to make recommendations that don't practically match onto anything that the patient in front of us can do. And I, I'm not saying that the goal here is to have every physician be a black male. I think everybody can appreciate why that would be a problem too, right? Um, because then there would be other experiences um, that are that are not shared between the doctor and the patient. What I'm arguing for is a doctor population that reflects the patient population and that that be balanced. And so we have to focus on areas in which that gap is the biggest and, and, and black males is certainly one of them. So on that note, let's talk about mentoring. It's important for anyone, but especially in science. You've had some remarkable mentors, people like Tom Insel, at the time the director of the National Institutes of Mental Health, basically the top research psychiatrist in the nation. But I want to talk about your relationship with Francis Collins. He's the director of all of NIH. You reached out to him about how to increase the number of physician scientists like yourself, and especially more people of color in this area. Yeah, so NIH had gotten really interested in figuring out how to support people who were both physicians and scientists. And there was a long history of understanding the importance of this, right? Francis Collins is a physician scientist, so that's where the Human Genome Project came from. Um, the people who discovered uh, the pathways that you can use to uh, make the drugs that treat high cholesterol were physician scientists. So there's a long history of physician scientists in this country that have done things to improve human health, and the group of people who could be trained to do both was going down. So the NIH studied this issue and were thinking about how to best support people who did both. And the key point that I 
made, the, the one that I think really resonated with him was I finally pointed out that, you know, 1% of NIH scientists are black, which means there's incredible adversity somewhere along the pipeline to get people to become funded scientists. And so if me as a black male could figure out how to get funded 11 years before everybody else, there's something that I was telling him that could easily extend and extrapolate to the rest of the country how we train physician scientists. So if it worked for me, Lots of other people without the same barriers, it should work for them also. And so I connected with him at that point in time in helping come up with some new policies and grant mechanisms, uh, many trips back to NIH um, to create funding tools to support uh, residents doing research during the residency. And those have now been funded across the country to test different ways of training physician scientists and coming up with optimal pathways. So my intersection with Francis uh, pretty early on was figuring out how to redo um, a way of training physicians and scientists that have been around in the country for like 60 years. And, and so since that time, Francis has served as um, a real sponsor and advocate. So this is precisely where I want to go with this conversation, which is how does the lack of sponsorship, advocacy, promotion connect with why whether it's people of color, women, you know, whatever group it is, maybe don't rise as much, don't do as well in the sciences. It's everything, right? It is everything. Black scientists face uh, in incredible challenges. Um, if you look at the empirical data, they tend not to get cited as many times as their white counterparts, which then is part of the evaluation of the system. And all the way up into uh, problems with the NIH funding system, uh, with the scientific evidence suggesting, even when you have a scientist that has had the same pedigree, in other words, they went to the same schools, whether it's Duke, Harvard, Hopkins, Yale, Stanford, so same pedigree, same number of awards, same number of publications, there's still bias in the system against them, right? And so the challenge here is how do you access the power structure? Because the power structure is necessary for your career to thrive. And part of the power structure is connecting with the in-group of those that have power. There is no doubt whatsoever that part of the reason my career has been able to progress is because I've figured out how to have access to unique spaces of power that many people, unfortunately, are not giving access to. Mentors, advocates, sponsors, these are individuals that create opening to the spaces of power. It doesn't mean that I am any more or less talented for having accessed those spaces or not, right? Um, to remain in those spaces, I have to be talented, but one can be talented and not enter in those spaces and then you don't um, have impact. And I find far too often because of the legacy of slavery, some of those spaces of power are connected to wealth, uh, which is connected to race in this country. Well, so how does one get access to those spaces of power? I mean, I think you and I have tapped into some of that to some degree. Some of this is how do you access? Some of it is also, is also the culture, the, the language of those spaces of power, so to speak. So how, how do you access that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think my, uh, story is a, a good tale on how to do this, right? So I always say, get a mentor and grow with your mentor. People need to be much more proactive in finding mentors and convincing people that their investment in time in you is valuable. And, and what I mean by that is that everybody, you know, smart people and busy people, they're 
biggest resource limitation is their time, right? So I make it really easy to mentor me, really easy, right? And I try to make it a joy to mentor me. I always I try to send my mentors notes of encouragement and understanding, right? I send my mentors every single positive update that ever happens to me. I make them aware of it because I want them to know that their time investment in me has been good, right? And then I don't ask my mentors to necessarily make time for me. I make time for my mentors. When I'm talking with students, I always give them a clear example. And I ask them, I said, you know, if any of you were in finance and, you know, you just finished up business school and Warren Buffett was willing to meet with you for an hour, how far would you go for that meeting? And everybody's like, I would basically get on a plane and I would fly to the opposite side of the world for a meeting for an hour with Warren Buffett, right? And that's actually the right answer. And so I've always treated all of my mentors like that. I make it as easy as possible for them to invest in me. I constantly remind them of the returns on their investment. Um, and I interact with them as human beings. And, and that for me, those three parts have been the real formula of success in me being mentored. And then that stabilizes the relationship in a way that I then grow with my mentors. So Kaf, we're having this conversation a few weeks after the killing of George Floyd. A lot of people of color, and especially young black men, have tense experiences with the police, to say the least. And I know you're no exception, unfortunately. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, so I was going to a friend's house um, to study, and I'd come from clinical rotations, so I had on uh, some scrubs and my white coat, and I was uh, walking towards my friend's house, and, you know, and some police approached, and I, like, you know, many of my generation tense up a little bit when the police approach, but I think I thought, thank God I'm not in, like, the normal sweatpants and hoodie that I tend to wear every other situation I'm in because, you know, I used to be an athlete. It's, like, the most comfortable clothes I can be in. I figured, you know, I got my scrubs and my white coat. There's, it, like, clearly it says Duke medical student on my ID badge. Duke is, like, a, like, less than a mile that way. Um, I'm holding uh, my gross anatomy book in my hand, so so this is like going to be pretty simple and straightforward, um, which it was not. Despite all of those other cues, my white coat, my scrubs, uh, you know, somebody just looked out their window and saw danger. And even the officers who came to talk to me couldn't override their biases that said danger. <laughs> So you're wearing your white coat, you're wearing the scrubs, you're wearing the dance goes, which are like the shoes for people who don't know that doctors wear. You have your ID on. And the only thing that is different is where you are standing. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And this is not a this is not a unique experience at all. I have friends, um, particularly black men, uh, who have trained at some of the best institutions in the country that not only have these experiences with police, they have this experience with campus police as they're walking around, like going into research labs, like it, they have their ID badges on. It is like, this is a shared experience. Yeah, and I'll never make excuses for this at all, right? Uh, because I think it also speaks to the greater bias, right? The If no one ever sees a black man who's a doctor and a scientist going into or out of the research buildings, that's not what your bias tells you is going on, right? So 
I'm not, I, it, that is not a, um, a justification for the behavior. I think that, that that highlights a second problem with society, which is that we don't have more black men in medical school, more black men uh, who are scientists. And more broadly, it hires the why I think these problems are systematic, right? And systemic. Because the intersection of the problem and then the response to the problem further reinforces a, a really great societal weight on um, individuals like myself. I know how hard, on a personal level, how hard the pandemic has been for you. Can you describe a little bit about why this stretch since March has been so stressful in terms of your work and and how you are or not able to to find stress relief in this moment? Yeah, I mean, so it it is um, both uh, let's say it is not an understatement um, and neither irony to say that COVID has been a natural disaster, literally. <laughs> Um, and so the research labs at um, many universities, including Duke, uh, were shut down. In the lab, I have a 25-person 20, lab, and I was essentially doing all of the uh, in-lab bench experiments myself. And, you know, the way I navigate this level, I've pushed myself like this before. I was able to do it in residency. But the way I navigate this is I also think um, quite effectively about stress relief, and so I exercise and I run and I run around my neighborhood and I run on trails. And as I was running, this is when the Ahmaud Arbery um, story really broke and hit national news. And it was a story about just a, a young man who was running um, and people thought he was running in the wrong place and essentially chased him down in their car and lynched him and killed him. And here I was running around um, a neighborhood um, all of a sudden, thinking if like it was safe, and you know my my the women in my life also um, know that I run, and so they started getting worried. Um, even so, to the point where my mom was like wasn't able to sleep knowing that like I run for exercise in the neighborhood because this was so profound and so raw, and. Then on top of that, then we all saw the tragedy, which all of us have experienced with the full weight, um, like the full excruciating weight of George Floyd and being pinned to the ground um, to the point that he couldn't breathe. And that, uh, you know, it is it's created what I'll say is a space where um, people who had the luxury of looking away and not looking at these things now we're looking at it and want to understand it so it's created a space where people are more comfortable talking about these unique experiences right the things i'm navigating now with my colleagues i've been saying for years um, on panels i've been saying for years in the committees uh, that i'm in where i'm generating policy i've been saying it for years when i meet with graduate students and i go give talks and postdocs i've always been super candid about this stuff you can find you know talks online where i'm talking about the importance of diversity like i do this all the time it's just entered 
into a new space because there's a new space that really wants to understand it as well. So the weight has personally been heavy. Uh, it feels like there's an incredible responsibility to this time also. I, I, I just don't know how long people are going to be interested in this. So I want to do the best I can to cause as much impact during this window. Um, but many of us already entered into this time exhausted by COVID, exhausted by social isolation, exhausted by germs everywhere and people dying and particularly uh, black people excessively dying from COVID. Um, and so it's just been a really challenging um, and unique time for many of us. So in, in reading your, your op-ed draft, um, there was another comment you made that made me sad, but also I kind of identified with where, where you said, I'm a black man and the idea of making people feel uncomfortable about my presence always feels like career suicide. Yep. Yeah. I mean, so I am well aware that um, there are a series of biases that people encounter in every aspect of their life that equates black men with threat. Um, and so I'm aware of that. And it, if I trigger that, then it becomes very hard for me to teach and transform and to cause impact because their threat response is triggered, which then promotes a different type of learning, right? It promotes a type of learning which says avoid threat. There's a constant narrative that says threat, 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 and people respond to that. I'll say one of the most interesting experiences that I had, um, I gave a talk in Beijing uh, last, uh, late October, November. And I gave a talk and I got there and, and, you know, the sponsoring organization sent a car to pick me up. And so, you know, the, the limo driver is driving it had been like a 13 hour flight. So I was tired and sort of halfway sleep in the back, but awake enough to see what's going on in my surroundings. And the limo driver, I can see him holding up his phone and taking selfies with me in the back of the car. So this like feels weird. I'm wondering if like there's some sort of government agency tracking me. Um, and I get to the hotel and I tell the conference organizers about this and they just say, yeah, you know, they, they obviously call the limo company and like complain. And then they say, you know, it's the problem is, is like they like he's probably never seen a black person in his life. And every black person they see on TV from America is either a famous athlete or like a musician or a rock star. So he just assumed you were famous. <laughs> and so for me, right here, I am in this situation where people constantly don't experience me. But his bias was that I was like famous and awesome. And so he responded to that. While in the U.S., there's a totally different set of biases that have been programmed. And the contrast couldn't have been more clear. That's amazing, Kof. I think that's a good place to end our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk and share your story. American Diagnosis is brought to you by Just Human Productions. We're funded in part by listeners like you. We're powered and distributed by Simplecast. Today's episode was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. Our interns are Sonia Baradwa, Annabelle Chen, and Julie Levy. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast 
how to engage with us on social media, and how to support the podcast at americandiagnosis.fm. That's americandiagnosis.fm. Just Human Productions is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so your donations to support our podcasts are tax deductible. Go to americandiagnosis.fm to make a donation. We've got to pay Zach. So please make a donation to help us keep this going. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. Thanks for listening to American Diagnosis. Mm-hmm.